This morning, we're going to start a new series. It's a series that the, the whole network is going through, and it's uh, titled God Speaks. And uh, it is a sermon series on the minor prophets. And uh, I heard that we were doing this a couple months ago, and I was really excited when, when they told me this is what we are preaching through this summer. Now, it's very possible that you have gone through uh, your whole church life and you've never actually heard a sermon series on the minor prophets. Um, that's very possible. Uh, you maybe you've heard quotes from the minor prophets, quotes about prophecy fulfilled, especially around Christmas time, and there's some really good ones in there. But by and large, this is a, a much neglected part of God's word. And so this summer, we're going to be diving in, and I think it's going to be great. You're going to hear from a bunch of us. You got me today. Next week, you're going to hear from Steve, and then we got Mike, and we got Doug, and then you're going to have me again in August, and then we're trying to get somebody else from. Uh, from uh, the church, from the network to come out and preach near the end of August. So we're going to be tackling one book every Sunday. So it's going to be kind of a whirlwind tour through the Minor Prophets. Um, when I was in Bible college, one of, the, one of the assignments that I had was to read through the Minor Prophets, each of them, there's 12 of them, and then to write a little mini review and report at the end of it uh, on each book. And obviously, I did a lot of assignments in Bible college. I don't remember many of them, but I do remember that one. Uh, I loved it, actually. It was the first time I'd really taken the Minor Prophets seriously and sat down and read through them and tried to really uh, digest what was being said. And I remember just uh, really uh, sensing the heart of God as I read through the Minor Prophets. Maybe more than any other section in the Old Testament, you really get a sense of what God, what's important to God and what His heart is. Um, so the series is titled, God Speaks. What we see in each of these prophets is a God that is speaking to his people, a God who cares, a God who is intimately involved, and a God who's trying to get his people's attention. And often he's warning them, warning them about the path that they are on, that it's not a good path, that it's going to lead to destruction if they don't do something different. But what we see overarching is a God who is involved in real time and in real history, a God who cares about his people, not some sort of distant deity who's just up there just letting the world do its thing. No, a God that is involved, a God that cares, a God that walks with his people, cares about his people, and warns his people when they're not doing the right thing and tries to point them in the right direction. What I love most about the Minor Prophets is that God really wears his heart on his sleeve as you read through them. You just, you really get a sense of what is important to him. And I hope that we pick that up even a little bit here this morning. Uh, we're going to look at the first book, um, Hosea, in a few minutes. Um, we're going to work our way through, the, that, through Hosea this morning. Before we do that, uh, we have to lay out some background and some context. I would love to just jump into Hosea and start picking it apart, but we need to understand what we're reading here. We need to understand the history, the geography, and the context. Otherwise, we're going to feel a little bit lost. And so I want to start this morning with a brief overview and history lesson. Now, some of you might be thinking, why in the world did I get up to come to church this morning? I did not want to hear about geography or history. Um, I love history and geography, so I love this stuff, but I, I fully recognize that many people don't. But um, if we want to understand what's going on in the Minor Prophets, we need to have at least a basic understanding of what was going on at that time, uh, where they are located in history and where they are located geographically. Because throughout the Minor Prophets, we hear a lot about dates, we hear a lot about kings and kingdoms and foreign rulers, and we kind of need to understand what's going on so that we can kind of track with it. So, uh, start very basic here. Minor prophets are in the Old Testament. 
Uh, you have Old Testament, you have New Testament. New Testament is the life of Christ and everything that happens after Christ. And the Old Testament is everything before Christ. It's pretty simple. And the Old Testament is primarily the story about Israel, God's people, and how God interacts with Israel and what God calls Israel to do. So the minor prophets are located in the Old Testament. They are written between 800 and 500 years before Christ. Between 800 and 500 years before Christ, they are the last 12 books of the Old Testament. So first book of the New Testament is Matthew, and then you just kind of back your way up and you get 12 books, and that's the Minor Prophets. That's what you're reading there. The last book is Malachi, the first book is Hosea, and all the other ones are in the middle there. Minor Prophets are rooted in the story of Israel. Israel is God's chosen people. God chose Israel to be a light to the nations, and he was working through them to bring the whole world to get to know who God is. And so the minor prophets are speaking specifically to the people of Israel. There's four major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. They're major not because they're more important, but because they are longer books. So it goes major prophets, and then you got the 12 minor prophets, and they're uh, shorter books. Again, starting with Hosea, ending with Malachi, and all the guys in between. Okay, so in Israel, this history, very complicated, very chaotic time. The glory days of King David and Solomon, they are long gone. The nation has gone through a civil war and it's actually broken into two separate nations. It's important to know this stuff so that we kind of know where the, where the prophets are. Um, I do have a map and I have to apologize. Maybe we'll throw it up here. You do have an insert and it's, it's not very clear. Unfortunately, it was clear and then we photocopied it. Now you can't really read anything on here. So uh, we'll look up here. Um, so the first thing that we're looking at is a map of ancient Israel. The blue would be uh, the northern part. That's the kingdom of Israel, otherwise called Ephraim. So if you're reading through the prophets and God's speaking to Ephraim, he's speaking to the northern tribe of Israel. Kind of oscillates between Israel and Ephraim. And then you've got the southern part, that's the yellow, and that's the kingdom of Judah. So they went through the civil war, and you've got two kingdoms, okay? North and south. You've got Israel, you've got Judah. And then uh, on the map on the side there, it's kind of like a bigger view. You can kind of see that's the Mediterranean and what is today modern-day Israel, Syria, Iraq, Saudi Arabia down below. And so Israel is that tiny little spot that's yellow, and then all of these major empires are kind of around them. So they are surrounded by massive, intimidating empires, Egypt to the south, and then you got, you got Assyria, and you got Babylon, and then later on you got Persia. So today... Modern-day Assyria would be where Syria is, Babylon would be where Iraq is, and then Persia would be where Iran is in modern-day terms, just so you kind of uh, know where you're at there uh, today. So as a nation, both Judah and Israel, they were, they were struggling to stay faithful to God, struggling to maintain what it meant to be the people of God. Uh, we're, told, we're told of Israel, that's the northern tribe, that they did not have one single faithful king after David and Solomon, that every king was unfaithful, that every king uh, was essentially bad and led the people astray, led the people away from God. In Judah, it was a little bit different. In Judah, in the south, the kings kind of waffled back and forth between, between being faithful and being unfaithful. And you had some good kings and you had some bad kings. Um, uh, and, and so the real issue is they were worshiping other gods. Uh, both Israel and Judah, when they weren't following God, they were adopting all of these other nations' gods. They were, they were engaging in idolatry. They were adopting foreign practices. They got as bad as having child sacrifices and temple prostitution in Israel, in the place that God is supposed to be represented to the rest of the nations around them. So they lost their ability to be a light 
uh, to the rest of the world. And so it is in this time that the prophets rise up. They rise up as agents to warn people that if they do not turn back to God, something bad is going to happen. Imminent disaster is on the way if they don't do something. Foreign invaders are coming in and you're going to be exiled. So God is warning them. And so as you read through the prophets, there is a lot of judgment language. And at first glance, you might go, what kind of God is this who's constantly talking about judgment? But here's the thing. This is a God that sees his people on a path to destruction. And here's a God who cares enough to warn them. To say, look guys, you keep going down this direction and you're going to be destroyed and you're going to be exiled. And over and over again in the prophets and through the prophets, God says, all you got to do is repent and turn back and become faithful to me and, and you won't be destroyed and you won't be exiled. But unfortunately, they didn't listen. They didn't return to him. God gave them many, many chances. But in the end, both Israel and Judah are exiled. And so... Uh, on your back of the sheet there, and this is where our prophets come in, if we can flip the slide there. Uh, I've given you a little bit of a chart so you kind of know uh, where everything lands. So Assyria is the massive empire that ends up destroying northern Israel. So they come in and they destroy Samaria and northern Israel. Judah lasts a little bit longer. So in Assyria, during the Assyrian period, is Jonah, Amos, and Hosea speaking to the northern tribes. So today when we're looking at Hosea, we're looking at a prophet who is speaking to the northern tribe of Israel. Uh, and the key event there is that Samaria, which is the capital of Israel, or Ephraim, it falls in 722 BC. You got the next period, which is the next empire that kind of comes in. They take over the Assyrian Empire. They're the Babylonian Empire. And it's the Babylonian Empire that eventually destroys Judah, destroys Jerusalem, and takes all those people into exile. And so you've got all these other prophets speaking to Judah. So that's Zephaniah, Nahum, Habakkuk. Jeremiah, Obadiah, Ezekiel, and uh, Jerusalem falls there. Your key date is 597 BC. And then you got a third period, and this is when the Persian Empire rises up, and the Persians end up taking over uh, that area. And it's under the Persians that uh, the Jewish people are exiled there. And so then you got prophets that rise up and are speaking to people who are exiled, living in Persia. That's Haggai, Zechariah, Joel, Malachi. So next week, Steve is going to be speaking on Haggai. It's important to know that Haggai is speaking to exiled people. Haggai is not speaking to northern Israel who is about to be destroyed. Haggai is speaking to people who were already destroyed and who have been exiled in Persia. So, so I hope I'm not losing you here, but as you read the prophets, you, just, you kind of need to know who they're speaking to and in what moment of history so you're kind of tracking and you can understand what's going on. And then if we know the history of, uh, of the Hebrew people, they return back to Jerusalem in 538 BC. And that's, where, that's where, when the Jews are back in their own hometown. Okay, so that gives you some real basic understanding of what we're reading with the Minor Prophets. Now let's just get ourselves into Hosea. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, flip it open, find Hosea, and we're going to work our way through the first Minor Prophets. You just got uh, Old Testament Bible School 101 in like 10 minutes. <clears throat> Hosea, great book to start the Minor Prophets. And the reoccurring theme throughout all of the prophets is spiritual apathy and idolatry. And no other book illustrates this better than Hosea. Hosea's words reflect this, but even more than that, Hosea's life actually reflects this. God uses Hosea's life as a metaphorical message to the people of Israel. He's really trying to get their attention. And words wasn't enough, so they actually, God actually used Hosea's life. 
So God tells Hosea to go marry a prostitute named Gomer. And they have three children together. And their names, they are given names by God. And they represent God's rejection of Israel because of their unfaithfulness. It's pretty intense stuff. So uh, uh, Hosea chapter 1 verse 2. I think we got it on the screen there. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. And so Hosea's life of marriage is actually meant to be a reflection, a, a metaphor, a message of how Israel is cheating on God and how God is in this idolatrous relationship with his people. Two chapters later, we see that after having three children together, Gomer has gone and cheated on Hosea again. And the Lord comes to Hosea and says, take her back. So chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, this is what the Lord says. The Lord said to me, go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and she's an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethic of barley. So let's just stop there. First thing we want to talk about is the raisin cakes because it can be a little bit uh, what's going on here. I don't think God has an issue with raisin cakes. If that's what you're planning to eat for lunch, it's okay. The problem here is raisin cakes is this actually represented um, temple prostitution. And when you're, when you're in the act of that celebration, you would have raisin cakes. So it was just part of the whole cultic ritual. And so this was God's way of saying, you know, this is how bad you guys have become. You've kind of gotten kind of mixed up in all of this other idolatry and all of these other gods that it's so harmful for you and you've gone that direction. It's interesting to note that Hosea here actually has to purchase his wife back, which means that she was probably a slave, probably a prostitution slave. And he has to spend money on her to redeem her and to get her back. What an analogy of the human predicament and the price that God pays for us. Right? Almost really a foreshadowing of what Christ is going to do for us 800 years later. Strange. You might be thinking, this is strange. Like, why would God do this? And why is this poor guy, this poor prophet? Like, like, why is God doing this? This actually isn't the first time that God uses the prophet's life to get people's attention. There's a couple other examples in the scriptures. I'm going to name a few of them here. Jeremiah, he's not allowed to get married in Judah. Uh, it symbolized the broken covenant between God and his people. Ezekiel's told not to weep for his wife. His wife dies and he's not allowed to weep for her. Somehow this symbolically represented the destruction of the temple. Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah was told to rock, walk around naked for three years. And Jeremiah was told to walk around with chains and yokes of wood around his neck. This was to represent uh, exile. That exile was coming and this was going to happen to the people. Because when they were conquered, they were marched out naked with chains and yokes. And so... God actually uses prophets' lives, not just their words, to say, guys, this is what's coming. And if you're not going to listen to the words, you've got to look at my prophets and look at their example and go, this is what's happening to you. God's doing everything that he can to get his people's attention to say, hey, wake up. Something bad is about to come. You need to repent and turn around. I'm trying to get your attention, but if you're not going to listen, here's the path you're on and here's what's going to happen in the end. This period in Israel and Judah's history, it's intense. And they are both taken over by other nations. They're both exiled and they're, both their capital cities are destroyed. And it's all because of their idolatry. And so when the words aren't enough, sometimes God even uses the prophet's life as a metaphor to get their attention. And we see that in Hosea and his marriage. As you read through the first three chapters of Hosea, you're going to feel the pain of a husband who has a cheating wife. You can just feel the pain of God 
who loves his people and his people are cheating on him and they are idolatrous and they are going other directions and you can just, you, you can feel how the anguish that God is in almost through Hosea's life himself. But the book of Hosea isn't really about Hosea. It's about God and it's about his relationship with the people Israel. God is in anguish and there's a tangible pain here and it's, it, and it's illustrated in one of the most graphic images we can think of, a cheating spouse. God is in covenant with his people. A covenant is like a, is like a marriage, but it's, it, it's not one-sided. It's supposed to be two-sided. It's supposed to be a reciprocating relationship just like a marriage. How many of us want to be in a one-sided marriage? None of us. It's supposed to be reciprocating, right? Uh, we are in relationship with the living God, relationship that denotes intimacy, loyalty, trust. This isn't just about having information about God or knowing about God. It is relational. And so if there's anything that we walk away with as we read Hosea, it will be this. God wants to be known. The kind of, the kind of knowledge that God wants us to have of him is like that of the knowledge of a marriage. This is what he's looking for from us. This is the kind of God that reveals himself to us, the kind of relationship that he's longing for from us. So don't take my word for it. We're going to keep reading through uh, some passages here in Hosea. So Hosea chapter 4. Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land. There is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. There is only cursing, lying, murder, stealing, adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Because of all this, the land will dry up and all who live in it waste away. The beasts of the field, the birds in the sky, the fish and the sea are swept away. So God is bringing a charge to Israel and he says, here's the charge. You guys aren't faithful. And you know what the key word in here? It's that it's the knowledge. There's no acknowledgement. They don't know God. And the fruit of this lack of knowledge is violence and brokenness, and it even affects the land around them. The next verse, verse 6, God says this, My people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also reject you as my priests. Because you have ignored the law of God, I will ignore your children. The word acknowledge or knowledge, it shows up all over Hosea. If you go back and read it, I want you to underline all the times that knowledge or acknowledge shows up because it is the, the word that keeps popping up and really is the issue that Israel has. The Hebrew word for knowledge, the original Hebrew word, it's translated into knowledge, it's yada. Uh, I've got that in, the, in your notes there, yada in Hebrew. Yada, it, uh, it's more than just an understanding about something. It's more than just factual evidence. It's much deeper. It's relational. It denotes this idea of trust, of intimacy, of loyalty, of intimate connection. And the English language really kind of holds us back from understanding what's really going on here because, unfortunately, we only have one word for no in English. I am painfully trying to learn Spanish, and it's not going very well, but I have learned one thing, that the word to know... There's two words in Spanish, saber and conocer. And I think it's the same in French. And lots of other languages have, have a couple different ways to, to express the word no. In Spanish, saber, it's, the, it's knowledge about information. So you would say, I know that this is a stand. Well, you're going to say that's saber, right? It's, it's about information. I know that that's a chair. It's, it's, you understand something. But if you're going to say, I know a person, it's intimate, it's relational, it's familiar, you, you use the word conocer. So it's two different, two different uh, words for, for no, both meaning something different. 
Yada, the, word, the Hebrew word yada, in this context, it's a relational word. It is not an information about something word. It is a familiarization with someone word. It is a personal connection, an intimate connection. And this absolutely makes sense then that God frames the whole context of Hosea in the analogy of marriage. This knowledge is not simply a matter of correct doctrine or theology. It is a knowledge of relational connection, much like a marriage. It's interesting. Uh, in Genesis, when Adam knew Eve, for the first time Adam knew Eve, they slept together. You know what the word knew is translated? It's yada. Adam knew Eve. That's how intimate this word know is. And that's the word used all throughout Hosea, the kind of knowledge that God is longing for from us. And it is here that we see the real issue. There is a lack of relational knowledge between God's people and God. They simply don't care, and they've gone somewhere else, and they've gone to someone else, another God. And God feels like he's in a promiscuous relationship with Israel. They're cheating on him, just like Hosea's wife was cheating on him. Let's look at Hosea chapter 6, verse 4 and 7. What can I do with you, Ephraim? So he's speaking to the north, right? It's Israel or Ephraim is the north. What can I do with you, Judah? So he's speaking to the south here as well. Your love, it's like a morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. Therefore, I cut you into pieces with my prophets. I killed you with the words of my mouth. Then my judgments go forth like the sun, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement, yada, of God, rather than burnt offerings. As at Adam, they have broken the covenant, they were unfaithful to me there. So what does God want? I mean, you just see his heart. He's wearing his heart on his sleeve. What does he want? I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire acknowledgement. I want you to know me. Relational connection. No sacrifice, no ritual repentance can substitute for intimate connection with God. Empty religion, don't want it. God says, I don't, I don't want your, your religious practices, as you read throughout the minor prophets, it's really interesting that people still go through the religion. They're still going to the temple. They're still going through the, the habits of sacrifice and thank offerings. But God says, I don't care. It means nothing to me because your heart's not in it. Because you don't actually seek to know me. It's empty religion and I want nothing to do with it. God wants our heart. He wants our loyalty, our trust, our love, our faithfulness. And this is the issue with Israel. They are unfaithful. They are fickle in, the, in their love. They are like a mist that just kind of blows away. They lacked knowledge. Let's go to the end here. Hosea chapter 13. And God starts getting pretty intense. Uh, Hosea 13 verse 4 to 9. But I have been the Lord your God ever since you came out of Egypt. You shall acknowledge no God but me, no Savior except me. I cared for you in the wilderness, in the land of burning heat. When I fed them, they were satisfied. When they were satisfied, they became proud, and then they forgot me. So I will be like a lion to them. Like a leopard, I will lurk by the path. Like a bear robbed of her cubs, I will attack them and rip them open. Like a lion, I will devour them. A wild animal will tear them apart. You are destroyed, Israel, because you are against me, against your helper. This is, this is pretty graphic language. God, God says... God called Israel to be his own people. He led them out of Egypt. He gave them everything to be satisfied. And in return, what did he want? He wanted to be known. He wanted their heart. He wanted their loyalty. And they walked away from him. God is a jealous God. And he will not tolerate idolatry. 
He wants wholehearted commitment. And, and, and here we do see a very graphic warning of what is coming. If you read through Hosea, uh, on the other hand, you're going to see how much God waffles back and forth between judgment and between mercy. In passages like the one I just read there, he is offering a very stern warning. Guys, take this seriously, he says. But then, in other, in other passages, he'll actually go back and he'll offer mercy. It's interesting. He's like a hurting husband battling between anger towards a cheating wife and yet his deep love for her, despite the rejection that he feels. And so like, there is this tension in Hosea, this tension between God's pain and justice and God's love and forgiveness. And there's this tension and he's just constantly saying to his people, please just turn back. I want to be merciful. I want to be your God again. He's just torn. One of the best passages that illustrates this is chapter 2, verse 19 and 20. And there's kind of like uh, bits and pieces of this all throughout the book. There's like this quick reversal of judgment where God suddenly, all of a sudden, seems to almost turn, change his mind and speaks about a future where the people will return to him. This is what he says, chapter 2, verse 19 and 20. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I'll betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. And here, once again, we see the heart of God loud and clear, what he really wants. And he's speaking about a future day. And he's saying, in that day, we see that phrase actually a lot throughout the minor prophets, in that day, what's the future going to look like? And God says, in the future, there's going to be this great relationship. There's going to be this marriage connection that we have, this intimacy that we can experience together, a marriage of love and compassion and faithfulness. And again, we see the word yada in here, right? I will acknowledge the Lord. You will acknowledge the Lord in that future day. Uh, I came across this fantastic quote from one of the commentaries that I was reading. And I just, I, I think it's good enough to throw up there. Um, it says this. Is it up there? Yes. And thus, the tension between God's sense of justice and his desire for mercy is put on full display throughout the book of Hosea. Perhaps the reader learns more about the heart of God through Hosea than anywhere else in the Old Testament. I love that. Because when you do read through Hosea, you're going you're gonna to see this conflict going on, this waffling back and forth between judgment and mercy. And, you, and what you, you just see the pain of a hurting God towards a people that he loves, but a people that have absolutely turned their back on him and cheated on him. So what's our application today? What are we supposed to walk with, walk away with? Uh, number one, I hope, I hope you're inspired to read Hosea. Obviously, we can't read the whole thing here this morning, so I've just kind of given you little tidbits, but uh, I hope that you are inspired to go read through Hosea. It's, it's a really fantastic book. And just to sense the pain of a God who loves his people and people who are rebellious and have rejected him. That's number one. Number two, I would say this. We need to take idolatry very seriously in our lives. We don't worship foreign gods the Israelites were worshiping, worshiping a god called Baal at that time, we, and he was a statue. We don't worship stone statues or wooden statues. We're, we're not caught up in temple prostitution ceremonies. But let's not kid ourselves. We still struggle with idols in our life. Do you know that Baal worship was actually meant to provide prosperity to those who worshiped him? Are we, are we much different today? We don't worship Baal anymore, but our culture still seeks and worships prosperity. And so I would say to us North American, Western uh, Christians, we need to be very careful not to let money and pleasure become an idol that ends up leading us away from God. We have to be very vigilant to make sure that those don't become idols in our life. 
I would suggest that one of the primary reasons there's so much spiritual apathy in our culture today is because there is a God, because our God is um, a God of prosperity. And so if what's most important to us is a bigger house or a larger bank account or fancier holidays, we should probably do a bit of a gut check. Now, there's nothing wrong with those things, but if that's what's most important to you, and if that's becoming an idol in your life, we need to take this seriously. As Christians, we are called to live a totally, radically, counterculturally different life and have a different perspective. And so what is that different life? And so this would be point number three. We know God, and the fruit of our life uh, shows that. As I read through Hosea, I'm inspired by a God that desires a deep connection with us. He's a God that wants to be known, not just in our heads, but in our hearts, in our souls, in our inner being. This is what God is looking for. And the marriage metaphor is very intentional here. The knowledge of God, yada, it's relational, it's experiential. It's not simply academic or intellectual. It's not just up here. It's in here. J.I. Packer, many of you will have heard his name. He's one of the most prominent theologians in the 20th and 21st century. He's written hundreds of books, mostly on theology. His number one bestseller, Knowing God, right? This is what he says, J.I. Packer, and I want to throw this up here. What were we made for? To know God. What aim should we set ourselves in this life? To know God. What is the eternal life that Jesus gives? Knowledge of God. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. John 17, 3. What is the best thing in life, bringing more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else? It's the knowledge of God. This is perhaps the smartest guy that's lived in the last hundred years, who perhaps the most influential theologian in the last hundred years, and this is what he says. It's not about what's up here. It's about what's in here. As you read through spiritual reflections of some of the most influential Christians in history, you will quickly pick up their passion for knowing God intimately. For them, it was never just an academic or intellectual exercise. For them, they passionately pursued a vibrant, living connection with God. You see it over and over again. So I would say this morning, spiritual apathy is a big deal. God's not looking for some sort of half-hearted religious duty from us. He wants our heart. He wants our loyalty, our trust, our commitment to him. This is why Jesus calls us to be his disciples. Because a disciple does what his master does. A disciple follows what his master is doing. We're not called to just sit on the stands and observe. We're called to follow, to be a disciple. When I think of my own marriage... I'm not content to just simply wear the ring, live in the same house, and raise my kids with Laura. If that's all marriage is to me, it would be pretty unsatisfying. Right? I, I want to know Laura, not just intellectually, but deep. This connection, this relationship that is satisfying and, and reciprocating. That's what I long for as a husband, what I look for in a marriage. And this is what God is looking for from us. This is why prayer is such a key practice for Christians. How can you know somebody if you don't spend time talking to them and hearing from them? This is why reading scripture is important. How can you get to know somebody if you don't learn from them and and hear their heart and let God speak to you through the scriptures? This is why spiritual disciplines matter. Not because we're doing discipline for the sake of discipline, but because it helps us get to know God more. The reality is if we want to know God, we're going to learn how to do it. Because it it is our heart that he is after. 
So this morning, I don't know how you feel. Um, inspired, challenged, motivated. I don't know. I've, I've read through Hosea a number of times this week, and just every time I read it, I'm blown away. I'm blown away that there is a God that cares this much. Imagine the creator of the universe caring this much about his people. And sometimes I ask myself, why? I mean, why not just be a distant deity who created the world and just let it go? But that is not the God that we believe in. It's not the God who has revealed himself just through scriptures, active in the world. Our God really does care about us. And he calls us to know him intimately, closely. And we will be most alive. We will be most satisfied when, when, when that's our focus, as J.I. Packer says. This is really, truly what it means to be fully human. To know God and to pursue him. To love him. To give him our heart and our everything. That's when we're going to feel most fully alive and most fully satisfied. And I think we see that in the book of Hosea and throughout the scriptures. So, lots to be said this morning. Let me pray and I'm going to invite the worship band to come up again. God, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you that you reveal yourself to us, uh, not only as a loving father, but as a loving spouse. And you invite us into this incredibly intimate relationship with you, God. I pray this morning that we, that we would seek to know you more, that we would pursue you passionately, God. If there are idols in our life, reveal those things to us, God, that we might turn from that direction and point ourselves towards you, God. We want to know you. We want to love you. We want to follow you. We want to be the disciples that you call us to be, Lord God. Thank you for your goodness, for your love, and for your mercy. Thank you for your faithfulness to us. Even when so many times we are unfaithful to you, you remain faithful, God. We thank you and we give you praise for that. In Jesus' name, amen.